Fines is our speaker for this particular session. Um, Eric may have been given the most difficult task of any speaker on the lectureship this year, and that is to speak at 2 o'clock to the teens and come in here at 3 o'clock and speak uh, to us. But I know that he will be able to handle that and do so uh, with great efficiency. Uh, Eric uh, probably doesn't need to be introduced to you. He is a regular, uh, not just in, in helping us at Bear Valley, but also speaking on uh, the lectureship. Uh, Eric lives in Wetumpka, Alabama, has served there as one of their ministers and also an elder in the past. But Eric's more known, I'm assuming, to most of you because of his work at Apologetics Press, where he has served as a full-time member of the Bible faculty uh, there since 2001. And just this past August, so about a month ago, uh, was named the executive director of Apologetics Press. And I know that he's qualified and capable of handling that, and I have no doubt that the work is just going to continue as it has in the past because of his great leadership and his work. I'm excited to introduce him to you. If you haven't heard him, you're in for a treat, and if you have, that's why you're here. And so I won't take any more of his time. I'll ask him to come preach. The only reason that individuals are okay with me being the director of AP now is because Dave's office is just two doors down. And so whenever I mess up, he's just going to come down there with his stick and shake it at me or hit me with it. So everyone feels great about it, including, including me. It's a blessing to be with you all today. You all are a beautiful group of people. I will say, if you don't mind me saying, you also look a little tired. You look a little tired. I mean, it's, it's uh, what, Saturday afternoon, about 3 o'clock. Reminds me of Keith Kasarjan a little bit. Keith Kasarjan going out hunting one day. You know, Keith's a preacher, missionary all over the world. Going out hunting with his uh, doctor friend. We'll call him Jonathan Moore, you know, Dr. Moore. And, and uh, his lawyer friend. I don't know many lawyers here, so I'll just say his name is Matt Vega. They went out hunting one day, the last day of deer season. And then they um, saw the biggest buck they had ever seen come out into, the, uh, into this open area. And they all fired upon the deer at the same time. Of course, Keith, being you know who he is, he was like, hey, I could preach a sermon about this being my deer. I, I killed this deer. He had already taken a picture of it, sent it to his lovely wife, and said, this is the biggest deer I've ever killed. And, and uh, Dr. Moore, you know, he said, you know, I could examine the deer and tell you who I think shot it. And Matt Vega was saying, I could make a law, a case about this in a court of law. This is my deer. Well, Jonathan won over and said, you know, his cool, calm, collected self said, let me examine this deer. So he looked at the front end of the deer and he went and looked at the back end of the deer and back to the front end of the deer and he said this is Keith's deer and said, what do you mean this is Keith the preacher's deer he said well the, it was a clean shot he said what do you mean it was a clean shot he said well the bullet went in one ear and out the other so it must be the preacher's deer <laughs> one ear and out the other that's one of my favorite jokes thank you all for laughing at it I will say that if you are tired on a Saturday afternoon and you don't have your football earplugs in here, you know, listening or watching to football games, uh-huh, uh, that maybe you can meditate for a few minutes this afternoon before we dismiss for supper and think about the King of Glory. It is a blessing to get to open up God's Word one more time this side of eternity. Have you ever thought about when will be the last time I get to open up God's Word, and feed upon it. So, here we are one more time, as you've been doing all weekend, looking at Psalm 24. Read it with me, if you will. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. 
For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I'm reading from the New King James here. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. He, or Who is this King of glory? The Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And then again, verses 9 and 10, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this? King of glory, the Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. What a beautiful psalm. Probably gets overlooked a good bit because it's the psalm right after Psalm 23. And so people, I suppose, for a long time now, they've read Psalm 23 and maybe they've closed their Bibles and not gotten to Psalm 24. We don't know for sure, I don't know for sure what the exact setting or occasion of this psalm is. There are some that are convinced that this is when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem after the issue that was had with Uzzah, you recall, a little bit later there in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and there are those who believe that the references to the Gates and the doors are references to the literal gates and doors of Jerusalem. Some are convinced that is the setting for this psalm. Some believe maybe it's more figurative as far as the gates and the doors are concerned. And that is used to refer to the people of Jerusalem. And this is in reference to God dwelling on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place in the tabernacle and later the temple there in Jerusalem as God dwells with His people. There are also others who believe that this is a messianic psalm that is referring specifically to the ascension of Christ. I suppose there can be and there are those who will debate about what is the appropriate setting for this psalm. It's not my purpose this afternoon in debating that, and I don't know that we could ever know 100% sure. But what we can know is that this psalm is full of language that God's people need to know, that God's people need to hear, because it is language that can absolutely change our, our lives. You know, David, it is, you read in the, uh, um, there at the top of the psalm, the uninspired words, but very possible, maybe likely, that this is a psalm of David there in the superscription. And if it is a psalm of David, then we have one of the most notable kings of Israel who is testifying that there is one who is infinitely greater than he is, the king of glory. And I would first like for us to consider this afternoon that he is the king of glory because he is the king of and by creation. And thus, ownership. And it is a a matter that I suppose maybe a a lot of people, surely a lot of people, and maybe unfortunately a lot of Christians do not consider. 
The first two verses are absolutely life-changing. They are life-orienting. Listen, until the atheist who says there is no God comes to understand the God of the Bible and the Bible that explains who God is will never be sadly fulfilled and properly oriented in this world. Because in order to have a proper perspective in this physical realm, we must understand that the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything that we have, everything that God has allowed us to see, that God has allowed us to get to know, has come from God's and come from God. And he, he, he nails this as, this is the Lord's, verse 1, and then verse 2, he tells us, he gives us the reason, the logical reason why this is the Lord's. Well, who made it? Did you make it? Did you make yourself? Did you make this earth? Listen, if you, if you built, could you imagine, listen, I'm not a builder. My wife would say, he can't even fix a stopped up toilet. He sure can't build a house, okay? But could you imagine, now I can fix a stopped up toilet, I think. But as far as like if, if there is a mechanical problem in the house, I probably cannot fix it. But some people can, you know, we have an elder at Wetumpka whom I love dearly. He's just a faithful servant of the Lord, one of the most humble men you'll ever meet. If I remember correctly, he built his house. And that's like not even his full-time job. I mean, he just can do stuff like that. Can you imagine if someone just decided they wanted to come and inhabit his house and call it their house? Well, Nelson would say, well, and this is about how Nelson would say it. Well, buddy, I, I built this house. This is, this is my house. God says, for he has, or the psalmist says, he, God, has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Now, you may be thinking, well, why is he talking about the waters there? Why is he talking about the seas there? Well, if we allow the Bible to explain the Bible, it would surely seem to only be appropriate because God made an earth that was covered in water. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon, or as the New King James says, was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning, God created a watery earth. You remember also on day 2, verse 6 of Genesis chapter 1, we read, let there be a firmament in the midst of the what? of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters verse 7 more water more water verse 9 let the waters under the heavens and so we can see in several of the first verses of holy writ there is a lot of mention about waters and so it shouldn't be surprising to us that God is referring to this being his creation and that it was a creation that was founded upon the waters and I would just remind us something that we, maybe we think about some, but maybe not a whole lot. We often talk about my house and my car and my money. We even read sometimes in Scripture of it being, you know, yours or, or mine. But we need to understand, based upon truths like Psalm 24 and verse 1, and God being the king by creation and ownership, that whenever we use terms like 
yours or mine, they are always used, whether we realize it at the time or not, or reflect upon it later or not, they are always used in accommodative ways, in accommodative language. I don't own a car. I mean, I have a couple of cars that God lets me use. There are a couple of old cars, by the way. I got two cars with 275,000 miles on both of them. Now, listen, I could get another Ford Escort or something if I wanted it, or a little Toyota Corolla, but my back, as I've gotten older, my back just doesn't work as well in those little cars. So now I drive a minivan that's nearly a quarter of a century old. Still, still driving it. All three of my kids learned to drive. You know who's, you know, it, I, I put in on, on the internet somewhere, it's a Carvana. I wanted to see if I could trade it in for a car. They said they'd give me $200 for it. Now, I don't know, I don't know if, they, 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 if they say that to everybody. I'm not sure. I just know that the four tires I bought for that van are worth more than the van itself. But I'm still driving it. It was also nice to have that van when all three of my kids were learning to drive because they all learned to drive for like the first year or two in that van. And you know what? When there's an, hopefully not a fatal accident, when there's a little fender bender, it doesn't matter because it's an old car. But guess what? It's still, whether I'm driving you know, a Mercedes or a Swagger Wagon. It's God's car. I've got a little bit of money in my wallet. That's God's money. I'm very thankful for the house that I live in in good old Wetumpka, Alabama. It's God's house. It's not my house. We will have a proper understanding of life, of things, if we will understand Psalm 24 in verse 1. Turn over, if you will, to Luke chapter 12 for just a moment. Let me just remind you of someone who did not have a, an appropriate view of things. The rich farmer. And, and just read with me for just a moment as I read, as Jesus is telling this parable, his words here. He says, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? My crops. Verse 18, so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store my crops and my goods. Now we could go on and there's a whole lot of my, my, and I. But may God help us not have the my-itis and understand what God and what Moses tried to get the Israelites to understand before they went into the promised land. They were coming into a land that God had promised to give them. It was a land that was, as the wording is used, flowing with milk and honey. It was a land that they did not deserve. It was a land that at one time they were intimidated because of, well, because of unrighteousness, number one, because of ungodly fear and it was a land that God had been promising them for thousands of, or excuse me, for hundreds of years. And then before they went into it, this is what God said to them. I, I love these verses. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Then you shall say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gained me this wealth. Now stop right there for just a moment. Think about that farmer. Maybe, maybe he was the one toiling outside and he was, he was you know, tilling the ground and he was, or maybe he was just the overseer of others who were doing it. And what God says is, be careful about that kind of thinking. You shall remember, verse 18, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. 
Isn't that something? How God says, not only, not only do you not own your farm, you don't own your house, you don't own your cows, you don't even own the energy that you had to try to make some of those things possible. God is the one who gives you, where did you get your energy? Well, if you hadn't eaten food that God had provided for you graciously, you wouldn't have the energy to go till the ground. By the way, did that farmer there in Luke chapter 12, did he, did he make his own seeds? Did he make his own dirt? You remember the story about get your own dirt, right? Did he make his own dirt? Did he make up the law by, I mean, who, who just, you know, if Eric were to make seeds, they would just be, you know, you know, rocks, basically. Eric can't make rocks or seeds, but let's just say he could. It would just be a rock. But see, the seed is in itself of its own kind, and it can reproduce as God made that to happen that way in Genesis chapter 1. As we see here, God is saying, listen, I own all this. I own the law of biogenesis, which says that things reproduce after their own kind. I even own the energy that you have. Now, he's not saying this greedily. He's not saying it this way in, in Psalm 24 and verse 1 because he's selfish. He lets me drive a car that I don't deserve, live in a house I don't deserve, have a wife, a woman that I certainly don't deserve. I get to go to an office on a regular basis that I don't deserve to be there. God owns it all. And when we have that perspective of life, if that perspective of physical things, we're going to have the proper perspective for the king of glory, and our life is going to be so much more beneficial and fulfilling. Did, did John not write in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made by him. Paul would say in Colossians 1, all things have been created by him and for him. I'm here for him. You're here for him. He's my king. He's my Lord. He can tell me whatever he wants me to do. And what's so awesome is, you know he has our best intentions in mind. I love, what, I love what God said to Job. And can you imagine God speaking to you out of a whirlwind? What God says to Job in Job chapter 41 and verse, verse 11. He says in the... New, the uh, New American Standard, who has been first to give, uh, give to me that, that I should repay him? Whatever is under the heaven, under heaven is mine. Whatever it is, whatever is under the whole heaven, he says, is mine. And you know, the, the psalmist there in Psalm 24 you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't give to God. So it's not like he owns something in an accommodative sense like us. But everything we own we own is an, in an accommodative sense. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Right. You will read these truths throughout Scripture that God owns it. Is it any wonder that Brother V.P. Black spent decades of his life preaching on stewardship? I'm so thankful he did. The church, by the grace of God and through his servant, Brother V.P. Black, is better because of it. And we need brothers and sisters. We need preachers preaching. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. The world. And get this. And those who dwell in it. Those who dwell therein. What do you mean, Eric? I mean that I'm God's. Like, he owns me. 
Um, I was in a doctor's office a couple of years ago. I was only one in the waiting area. I was hoping that wasn't reflective of the kind of doctor this was, but one man came out. You know, normally doctor's office is kind of busy. I was the only one in the waiting area. Man came out from the back, and apparently he, well, he was a patient because he said, man, that doctor is a good guy. He's a great Christian man. I said, that's great to hear. I didn't know that. I'm a Christian. I love being a Christian. That's, my, that, that's who I am. That's what I love to, love to be by the grace of God. He said, I'm not. I said, really? He said, I'm an atheist. I said, well, why are you an atheist? He said, well, because God's a killer. He kills people. He's killed people in the Bible. He's a murderer. Well, God is not a sinful murderer. Absolutely not. God is a just and holy God. And there are times when God has, in this life, I mean, punished individuals. Sometimes it's corporal punishment. Sometimes it has been capital punishment. And here's the thing. God, as revealed in Scripture, is a holy God, which we'll get to hopefully here in just a moment. He is a God who is righteous, who is just, whose intentions are always perfect. And here's the thing. God has every right. He made my physical body. I mean, you like, he didn't miraculously create me in the sense that he made Adam and Eve, but he, he miraculously made Adam and Eve, and he made the laws that made it so that Adam and Eve could have children who could have children who could have children and thousands of years later, here we are. That's because of God. He owns my body. Should I be careful about what I do with my body? I mean, I know I'm not that much to look at and I know my waistline's getting bigger and my hair's getting grayer and all of those good things, but listen, I'm, for whatever I am, it's exciting to know that I'm God's. That he owns me. And I'm happy to be on. Listen, we got the best owner that you could ever imagine. He owns me. Right. You know, when uh, in John chapter 21, when Jesus was foretelling how the apostle Peter would die. You remember what Peter, what Peter, how he responded to that there at the end of John's gospel? You know, Peter, impetuous Peter. And he said, but Lord, it's, you know, almost, I almost felt like it's kind of like that Samaritan woman at the well who kind of seemed to change the subject a little bit at times. And Peter was like, well, well, what about him? You know, seeing the one whom Jesus loved. Lord, what about this man? Like, let's stop talking about me and how I'm going to die. That, that's kind of creepy. What about him? And Jesus said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You know, it's not our purpose in this life to wonder, well, is Wayne going to outlive me or not? That'd be great if he did. Because I just, hey, am I not the beneficiary of that? I mean, I just get to go see Jesus. I get to go to paradise before Wayne does. Now, I'm not saying that I have a right or anyone has a right to end our own lives. I'm saying, is it not exciting to think about where we're going? To the one who owns us? To the one who created us? He owns us probably more, but at least three times over. He created, I mean, the, the earth is the Lord's. And the, all the fullness therein, the world and those who dwell in it, those who dwell in it. You remember what the, the psalmist would say, oh, what, about 75 psalms later in Psalm 100, he would say something very similar. It is he, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You know, I'm his. You're his. He owns us. He is my king by creation. 
I, I can't think of a much more fundamental thought than he owns me physically and he owns my soul. He is, as Zechariah would say in Zechariah 12, he forms the spirit of man within him. He owns my body. He owns my spirit. The Hebrews writer says he is the father of spirits. The wise man said in Ecclesiastes 12, the spirit returns to whom? It returns to, my spirit returns to God who who made it to begin with? Who gave it to me? And so when an atheist says, well, how could, how could God be loving? They have, a, they have a flawed, tainted, really devilish perspective of life as if this life is all there is and I'm in total control of my life. Now, I have free will and you have free will, but the earth is the Lord's. He owns everything. We need to have that perspective, including me, including you. And he owns us three times over, as far as I can tell. He owns my body. He owns my soul. And by the grace of God, when I left a loving, compassionate God, when I reached an age of mental maturity and accountability and I went away from God, our perfectly... Psalm 24, 3 and following, holy God looked at my unholy soul and said, I'm coming down to save you. Jesus came to earth. He always planned to come to earth to take the punishment for my unrighteousness for my unholiness so I could come up to the holy hill of God are you kidding me? No. That's the story of the Bible. He has redeemed us. He has purchased us. He's bought us. Listen. You go buy something at the store. You know if you go buy a new computer and someone just tries to take it from you, you're like, wait, 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 wait. I own that. What do you mean you own it? Well, I did what? I, I, I bought it. I used plastic or cash. or We don't use checks much anymore, do we? And, you know, I purchased it. Don't, you know, when I was a little kid, I remember having a bicycle stolen. I mean, is it right there? I mean, within like 15 yards of my house, in the front yard, right beside it, just stolen. Like, what? that was my bike. My parents purchased that, purchased it. God redeems us with the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses... 18 and 19, and I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. I was unholy, I was lost, I was without hope, I was away from Christ. Paul would say in Ephesians 2, but God. But the holy God who expects us to have holy hands when we departed from that awesome, loving, caring, only wants the best for us God we defiled ourselves with the sins of this world that the devil loves for us to partake of. And God says, I love you and I want you to be redeemed. I want to make you holy. 
God, I love how these verses, Psalm 24, verse 1, verse 2, verses 3 and following, to me they go hand in hand because God owns me. Physically, He created me. He created my soul and He has saved me. He's bought me back. He's redeemed me spiritually. He has purchased me so that I could be, Psalm 24, verse 3, verse 4, so that I could have clean hands and a pure heart. Not being lifted up to an idol, not a heart that is lifted up to an idol and not being one who is going to be dishonest or, or deceitful. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Let me just mention very quickly as our, our time winds down, three or four things that I believe are very uh, prevalent hindrances to having clean hands, holy hands, to approach a holy God. I would say number one, and it would be a blessing if you know, everyone could hear the kind of lessons that we've been able to hear so far this weekend, but the reason there is such a problem with unholiness, one main reason is because people don't even know what holiness is. It's to be separate. It's God being hallowed as Jesus prayed in Matthew chapter 6. It is a separation from the darkness of this world. It is to be like God. God could make us not infinitely like Him, but like Him in the sense that He is light and in Him is no darkness, John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And God calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light so that we can have clean hands and approach God appropriately. But one of the biggest problems to holiness, one of the main issues for having unholiness is there being a, a, an ignorance of God and His holiness and His expectations for us. I mean, we see this throughout Scripture, do we not? In the days of the wicked King Ahaz. If I remember correctly, it was King Ahaz, you recall, the father of the, the great King Hezekiah, who shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. We read in his day and in Manasseh's day, his grandson, two of the most evil times and periods in Judean history. Why is this the case? Because they cared nothing for the law of the Lord. They cared nothing for having the law taught. They cared all about evil. We can read where Manasseh did evil, where during his time, 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 9, they paid, this is the text, how it says it, they paid no attention. No attention to what? To those things that you can read in the, the previous two verses. How, wait a minute, we're supposed to be keeping all the commandments of the Lord and the commandments of, of my servant Moses as he commanded, but they paid no attention. I, I would contend that when there is a paying of no attention to the law, then there is only going to be unholiness. But God calls us to have clean hands and a pure heart. What else is a, is a great hindrance to that? And, and I think closely related to ignorance oftentimes, biblical ignorance I'm referring to, is arrogance. And arrogance is closely related it seems to me because arrogance says, pride says, I don't need to know that. I know it already, right? 
I mean, I think sometimes maybe as a child, I thought my parents, whom I love dearly, they live right behind me. They're kind of like Dave. Dave is two offices down from me. My mom and dad live right behind me. So uh, listen, I've got people all around me. They're going to keep Eric in check, right? And I thought as a child, no telling how many times. Now, mom and dad, I think I know this better than y'all do. That was arrogance, youthful arrogance speaking. That's not to say that only young people can be arrogant. We can all be susceptible to that. But see, arrogance doesn't allow us to humbly come to recognize the unholiness in our lives that is only remedied by our holy God. Thirdly, I would say this, and this almost leads to the area of idolatry in my judgment, though maybe you've never heard these two thought of in this sense before. It seems like to me that apathy can also be, and oftentimes is, a great hindrance to Holiness. Let me just read a couple of things to you about apathy. You know, the, the psalmist mentions not giving over to an, an idol there. Notice what, um, notice some of these words here. Indifference, lazy, indifferent, lazy, detached, disinterested, dispassionate, dull, unconcerned, half-hearted. Does that describe us as Christians? Indifferent, lazy, detached, apathetic, you see. Or are we interested, passionate, concerned? Now listen, I understand that passion does not always necessarily manifest itself in Eric jumping up and down and hollering and hooping and everything else. But is there a fire in my bone for the Lord, the God, the holy God of Israel who dwells in His holy house, in His holy hill? Are we concerned? Are we hardworking? Are we zealous? Are we wholehearted about these things? Think about those words we just named and then ask yourself this. Which of those sets of words describe, describe our feelings toward, toward our favorite football team? Oh, now I'm getting to meddling, right? Which of these words maybe describe what, how we feel about our, our, our vacation time? Or... You know, going to watch our children perform, uh, you know, on the piano somewhere. Obviously, I'm not a musician. I didn't even really know how to say that. Uh, or watch them on a ball field. You know, we're passionate. We're zealous. I told my kids recently, I said, let me tell you one of the biggest regrets. I did. I, 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 I emailed. I felt like this was an appropriate confession. I said, I want to tell you what one of my biggest regrets in life is. That sometimes when y'all were playing sports, I was a little too passionate. Should not have been. I mean, I loved you and I was cheering for you, but sometimes I was like over cheering for you. And that just, that's not good in my judgment. I'm just saying, hey, these, the idea of being zealous for God, the idea of a hindrance to holiness being all out apathy, if we're not careful, our apathy can be almost like an idol in that we are wandering in, that we are uh, wallowing in just an apathetic life instead of a real passionate life for God. And may those words, interested, concerned, hardworking, zealous, may they, well, may, may they characterize our passion for God. Let's go back to Psalm 24 and just consider that our God also is our God who is mighty and strong who battles for us. Verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O 
you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, the, and the King of glory shall come in. You want the King of glory working in your life? Let's realize that He owns us, that He saves us, that He is the Holy One, but He's also the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Verse 10, who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, who is the King of glory. God, He is not just, He's not some kind of insane warrior, mean, hateful God. But He's a God who battles. He's an omnipotent, mighty Lord and King who fights for His people. We see that pictured throughout Old Testament history. And in our daily lives as Christians, I'm thankful that our God is with us. Because He's not only pictured as a God who fights for His people, He's pictured as a God who is with His people. Amen. And one of the most peaceful thoughts on the most difficult days is my God is Lord and King and mighty and strong when Eric is weak, when Eric is helpless. I, I read in a book several years ago, assuming because I read it in a book and didn't Google it, it must be true, right? I never asked Michael Jordan about this, but there was a, a reporter who went into the Chicago Bulls locker room after Michael Jordan had scored 69 points, he's either 68 or 69, some of you basketball fanatics could help me out here, and they were interviewing, not Michael Jordan, but for some reason they were interviewing my favorite, one of my favorite, you know, uh, Oklahoma Sooner basketball players, Stacy King. Some of you probably don't know him. And they said, Stacy King, how did you do in this game tonight? And they were surprised, they were surprised by his response because he only scored one point. And he said, man, I did great. He said, what do you mean you did great? He said, Michael Jordan scored 68 points because he said, Michael Jordan and I scored 69 points tonight. Listen, I didn't even, God's on my team and I, I didn't even make a point, but I tried. And I'm going to keep trying, Lord willing. Because I got the Lord of hosts on my side. And whatever happens in this life, eventually, everything's going to be made right. God's people will overcome. But we have to stay the course. Understanding God as our creator. As the holy one who is Lord of all. May God bless you this evening.